So as we open up the Word of God and as we look at it and study it and read it, that there really is the power of God that is released into our lives and into our hearts and into our souls. And I trust that tonight your heart, your mind will be very receptive to the Word of God and that His life-changing power will literally explode in your life. And if you've never yet come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, our, our desire is that you would meet Christ tonight and that His, His grace and His mercy would explode in your life and that you would be dramatically changed. So as we're talking about uh, the Word of God, I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. And if you have trouble remembering where these books are, you can remember it this way, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, General Electric Power Company, okay? <laughs> that's, that's the easy way to remember it. So we're, we're looking at the power tonight in General Electric Power Company, um, Philippians chapter 3, and I want to begin reading in the middle of verse 4. And I trust that God will give you eyes to see and ears to hear His Word. So Philippians 3 and verse 4. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This summer, you've been looking at different individuals in the Bible, and you've looked at some great ones already. And when Austin Duncan asked me which one would I like to, to speak on, I thought, you know, I'm going to go for the very best. Uh, I'm not going to settle for a, a secondary figure. I'm going to go for Paul. And I think a case can be made that Paul is the greatest Christian who ever lived. Uh, only God knows who is the greatest Christian, but from our human perspective, I think Paul wins. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the author of 13 books in the New Testament. He was an itinerant evangelist. He was a church planter. He was a gospel preacher. He was an interim pastor. He was a disciple maker. He was a prayer warrior. I mean, we can just continue this list on and on and on. No one can match credentials with the Apostle Paul. And so if he was the greatest Christian who ever lived, 
It would be good tonight if we knew something about him so that my life can seek to follow his example. Now, it also stands to reason that if the Apostle Paul is the greatest Christian who ever lived, then his testimony would be the greatest testimony ever to be given. I mean, that just makes sense. And here in Philippians 3, we have the theological interpretation of his testimony. His historical testimony, the circumstances surrounding his conversion is found in Acts chapter 9. As Paul, uh, Paul then, Saul of Tarsus, was on the road to Damascus with letters in hand to apprehend the Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem and there for them to stand trial and perhaps even be stoned to death. And he was on that Damascus road that Saul of Tarsus, soon to become the apostle Paul, met the risen Christ. And when he met the risen Christ, his life was immediately, dramatically, and radically transformed. There, there is no way anyone could ever meet Jesus Christ and their life not be changed. I think I can put it to you this way. If your life has never been changed, then you've never met Jesus Christ because he's too powerful. He's too full of grace, too full of, uh, of mercy to, for you to encounter the living, risen Christ and for you just to continue to live the way you've always lived. No, anytime, anywhere, anyone has ever met Jesus Christ they have been so impacted that their life has changed. Even in Paul's case, his name is changed. And so as we look at Philippians chapter 3 tonight, this is Paul's testimony. But it is his testimony from a, a doctrinal or a theological perspective. Now, in any testimony... There's always three parts, and that's what we heard earlier tonight as Isaiah was interviewing uh, Matt. We cl clearly heard those three parts, and here, here's what they are. Your life before conversion, your life at conversion, and your life since conversion. Every true testimony will have those three component parts. What was your life like before you met Christ? And what happened when you met Christ? And what has transpired in your life since you met Jesus Christ? And Paul just beautifully breaks that out here tonight, and I'm excited to be able to show you this. But before we look at this, I just want to ask you this question. If you were to write out your testimony tonight. What would you write down? Matt told us about his life before he came to Christ, and that's what Paul does here in verses 4 through 6. It was his life before Christ. And then, in a testimony, you talk about what happened when I met Christ. And then, how has my life changed since then? If we were to pass out paper to everyone here tonight and turn the lights up and pass out pens and we ask you to do Roman numeral 1, Roman numeral 2, Roman numeral 3, and to write out your testimony, what would you write down? Do you have a testimony? And so I want us to look tonight at the greatest Christian who ever lived, the Apostle Paul. And I want us to hear the greatest testimony that's ever been given. So as we look at this tonight, in verses 4 through 6, if you're taking notes, it's just Roman numeral number 1, Paul's life before conversion. Paul's life before conversion. We would call that his B.C. days, before Christ. And so notice he says in, in the middle of verse 4, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And what Paul was saying here is, if anyone could have ever found acceptance with God 
through their own self-righteous efforts, Paul said, I'm at the head of the list. Everyone would be behind me. No one could match religious credentials with the apostle Paul and be able to find acceptance with God. Paul says, I'm at the head of the list. And he will now list seven aspects of what he once trusted in to find acceptance with God in heaven. And these are tightly worded. I just want to walk us through. They're in verses 5 and 6. And the first thing is, Paul said, I had a right beginning. He said, circumcised the eighth day. And circumcision on the eighth day was prescribed for all male boys born in the nation Israel under the Old Testament law. And it was required that every Jewish boy be circumcised, and it was a, a sign of what must take place in that person's life later down the road. There must come a time when their heart will be circumcised, when they will be set apart from a life of sin and to be set apart from this world and to be set apart unto Jesus Christ. That's what circumcision represented. And Paul said, I, I was circumcised on the eighth day, not the seventh day, not the fifth, not the, the ninth. My parents raised me. They had me in church from the time I was born. And on exactly the right day, I was circumcised. So he had the right beginning. And then third, he had the right nationality. Notice he said of the nation of Israel. Paul didn't come from a pagan country. He, he, he didn't come from a heathen nation. He, he was raised in the nation of, of Israel where the word of God could be heard, where there was public worship, where there was people talked about the Lord and, and the word of, of God. In the nation Israel, they had every privilege under heaven to hear the truth of the word of God. And this is unlike the Egyptians, unlike the Babylonians, unlike the Assyrians, uh, unlike the Canaanites, un unlike those in the, the Roman Empire, if you were born of the nation Israel, you had the closest proximity to the truth. You, you, you heard it from the time that you were born, and you, you knew the truth. And then third, the right heritage. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin. <laughs> That's as good as it gets. I mean, the tribe of Benjamin was one of the two elite tribes of, of Israel. They, they were, it was one of the two tribes that remained loyal to, to, the, uh, to David and formed the southern kingdom. It's in the land allocation of the tribe of Benjamin that is Jerusalem, is the temple is where the law was, was kept. In fact, the first, tri the first king of Israel was a man named Saul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin, and Saul himself was named after this king. And then on top of that, still in verse 5, he had the, up the right upbringing. Notice he said, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You cannot be any more Hebrew than to be a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That is to say, he was not raised in a secular home. He was raised in a very Jewish home where he learned the Jewish language, the Hebrew language. He was a die-hard Hebrew. He, he, he was raised in it. And then fifth, he had the right standard. Notice it says in verse 5, as to the law, a Pharisee. To be a Pharisee meant you were the most arch conservative in the entire nation. The Pharisees were Bible believers. The Pharisees believed in the sovereignty of God. And the Pharisees believed in the supernatural. They, they believed in in angels and miracles and the resurrection. The, the, the Pharisees knew the Bible inside out, outside in. In fact, they, they knew the Bible so well, 
they invented their own rules to add to the Bible. They were so sincere about knowing the truth. And Paul was a Pharisee. He, he, he was respected. He was looked up to by others in the nation Israel. He was a spiritual leader. Uh, he was as religious as anyone could possibly be. And then in verse 6, he had the right passion. <laughs> he, he, was, he was all in in his pursuit of a right standing before God. Notice in verse 6 it says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul was so fired up. Paul was so enthusiastic. Paul was so vehement about his religious convictions that he, he fought for what he believed, and he believed that it was right. He, he, he was not half-hearted about, about anything. He was not lukewarm. He, he was not apathetic. Uh, he, he literally was on fire in his pursuit of his religious convictions. And then the last thing we see, he had the right morality. At the end of verse 6, it says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now, the word blameless does not mean sinless. The word blameless simply means that before Paul met Jesus, he was as morally a straight arrow as anyone could possibly be. He was outwardly moral. He was externally upright. And if you had met the Apostle Paul before he came to Christ, you would have probably voted for him to be the pastor of your church. You would have wanted him to serve as an elder in your church. You would have said he is the, the most righteous man in all of Israel. He, he had everything going from, for him. Listen to this. The right beginning, the right nationality, the right heritage, the right upbringing, the right standard, the right passion, the right morality. Paul was the whole package. He, he had everything except the one thing. And that one thing was Jesus Christ. Paul was religious to his eyeballs and just as lost. If anyone on planet earth could have been saved by being a good person, by being religious, it was Paul. And he fell woefully short. He had an external righteousness. He had an external religion, but he had no inward relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, he knew about Jesus, but he did not know Jesus. Religion never saved anyone. Hell is full of sincere religious people. Hell is full of straight arrows. Hell is full of outwardly moral people striving by their own efforts to find acceptance with holy God. That was Paul before conversion. Can you remember your life before conversion? For some of you, you've just recently come to know Christ. It's easy for you to remember what your life was like before you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here tonight and your life was once just like Paul before his conversion. Maybe you grew up in this church. Maybe you grew up in a Bible-believing church. Maybe you grew up in a Christian family. 
Maybe you grew up in a Christian school. Maybe you grew up being homeschooled and had a Christian influence brought to bear upon you. Maybe you grew up going to Awana. Maybe you grew up going to Bible studies. Maybe you grew up going to a Christian camp or a Christian summer conference. And all that is fine and good. It just won't get you to heaven. You can have it all on the outside and be the most, the most respectable, the most admirable, the most sincere, the most religious person in this room. But if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it will not allow you to put one little toe into the kingdom of God. And Paul wanted his testimony here to be loud and clear. Now, I want you to note the second part of this testimony. That, that, that was his life before he came to Christ. Paul trying to save himself. Paul trying to merit salvation. And let me just say this before we look at Roman numeral number two. This is the hardest person in the world to reach with the gospel. It's not that they're too bad to be saved. They're just too good to be saved. You see, no one will ever be saved until they know they're lost. No one will ever come to Christ until they know they're separated from Christ. And Saul of Tarsus had no idea how separated he was from the kingdom of God. And maybe you're like that tonight. Maybe you're not so bad that you cannot be saved, it may be that you're such a good person that you never see your need for grace. So this now leads us to Roman numeral number two. It's in verses seven through nine as we track with this testimony, and it's Paul's life at conversion. We've, we have seen Paul's life before conversion. Now, this is Paul's life at conversion, because there came a day, there came a moment, there came a, a pivotal moment in Saul's life when he met the risen Christ. And why don't we just look at it for a moment? It's in Acts chapter 9. Just turn back to Acts chapter 9 for a moment. Let's just see this again. I don't know when's the last time you, you looked at Acts chapter 9 and saw the Really, the greatest conversion of anyone. Certainly the most dramatic conversion of anyone who's ever been converted. It would be the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Now Saul, that's the apostle Paul before he's converted. His name was Saul. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Let's just stop right there. He is so full of zeal to shut down the church, to apprehend the Christians, to literally drag them back to Jerusalem and put them on trial and for them to be stoned to death. And he's breathing threats and, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest in verse 2 and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, and that's what they used to call the Christians. They weren't called Christians until Acts chapter 11. They were referred to as those who were on the way because their life had been so changed, they were no longer on the broad path, they were now on the narrow way that is headed to life. He says, both men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as, 
As he was traveling, verse 3, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. That's about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and that light was the divine light of the glory of God in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and it was brighter than 10,000 suns shining in the sky above. It was a blinding light. It was a blazing light. Verse 4, and he, Saul, fell to the ground. It literally knocked him off his high horse and heard a voice saying to him, and you know whose voice this is, it is none other than the risen Christ. Saul, Saul, he repeats his name twice to be emphatic, to get his attention. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, note this, me? When you persecute the church, you are persecuting the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you persecute the body of Christ, you are persecuting the head of that body, which is none other than the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ himself. Verse 5, and he, Paul, said, who are you, Lord? He answered his own question before he got to the end of the sentence. Who are you, Lord? And here we see that anyone who truly comes to know Jesus Christ in a saving way recognizes the lordship of Christ over their lives. It's not just that they know him as Savior and have their sins forgiven, but they also know him, come to know him as Lord, the one who, uh, who possesses all the throne rights of the sovereign over their life. And in saving faith, when you come to meet Christ, you surrender your life to the lordship of Christ the moment you meet him. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. That is what we call lordship salvation. That is what we call lord, a lordship conversion. The moment someone comes to know Jesus Christ, they are humbled, they are convicted, they are surrendered, and they are submissive to the Lordship of Christ. And you feel the weight of what you must do to now live for Christ. So come back to Philippians 3. That, that's the historical account of his conversion. So come back now to Philippians chapter 3, and in verses 7 through 9, we see Paul's life at conversion, and we will see Paul give what I want to call a theological interpretation of what we just read in Acts chapter 9. And as we read verse 7, here's what you need to know. From the time of Acts chapter 9 until the time of writing the book of Philippians is a span of 20 years. So Paul has been a Christian for 20 years as he writes the book of Philippians. Why is it the only person in the room when the phone rings doesn't know it's his phone? All right. Now, it's been a period of 20 years. And Paul has had time to reflect upon his conversion. He's been able to, to give careful thought as to what it is to be a Christian. And so Paul now tells us what it is to be converted to Christ. And if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you can just put yourself in these verses. It'll be true for each and every one of us here tonight. So let's look at this. Verse 7, but whatever things were gain to me, and that is a reference to verses 5 and 6. Those things that I once thought was a, was a prophet in my account that would 
give me a right standing before God, whatever things were gained to me, those things, being circumcised on the eighth day, being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, being a Pharisee as to the law, having external righteousness, etc., all that, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, there's three key words there, gain, loss, counted. Those are accounting terms. When I was in college, where many of you are tonight, I started out as an accounting major, ended up a finance major, but one of the first things that I learned in accounting was a spreadsheet. And in a spreadsheet, you have, it's like a T-square, and on one side are your assets, and on the other side are your liabilities. And so under your assets, it's everything that you own and everything you have going for you. So how much money do you have in the bank? How much money do you have in a savings account? What is your car worth? What is your house worth? What is any jewelry that you might have worth? Well, what any stereo equipment that you might have, you just add it all up, and that is your net worth. That is your profits. And then over on the liability side, you, you write down everything that you owe. How much do you owe on your car? How much do you owe on your house? How much do you owe for your tuition at, with the bank? And that's the T-square. Everything in the positive, those are your assets. Everything in the negative, that's your liabilities. And this is how Paul is conveying his conversion experience, that there was a time in his life when he saw his life like a T-square and everything of value in his life that would give him acceptance before God, he just lists all of his assets. I was circumcised the eighth day. Uh, I was raised as a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, the tribe of Benjamin, uh, uh, righteous according to the law. That's everything that I had going for me. In the moment he met Christ, there was an extraordinary transaction that occurred. And everything that he once said was valuable in his life, it was immediately transferred over to the liability side of the T-square. There is no value in any of these things for me to find entrance into the kingdom of heaven. These are all liabilities. These were all losses. This is what caused me to be spiritually bankrupt. I just didn't know it. And now here on the, on the asset side, there is only one journal entry. Jesus Christ. And those assets that are in Christ, redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness of sin, adoption, all of these things, the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. In that moment... His entire life was turned upside down. In that moment, his entire life was turned upside down. And everything that he once trusted in, and everything that he once sought after, that he thought was of value, it turned out to be, listen to this, fool's gold. And there are people like that today. We may have them with us tonight. Who trust in their Christian upbringing, who trust in they've gone to a Christian school, who trust in that they have been water baptized, who trust in that they're a part of a group like this, but it's all fool's gold. 
for you to find acceptance with God. They're good things, but they're no substitute for Jesus Christ and knowing Christ. And so as Paul continues in verse 8, he says, more than that. In other words, I've got something else I want to say to you. I count all things, and those things refer to his education, his learning, his reputation, his ministry, his position, his prestige. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. He's talking, when he says to know Christ Jesus, he's not meaning just to know about him, but to actually know him experientially and and personally and internally within your heart. Not just to know about him with your head, but to have actually come to encounter the risen living Christ. Listen, I, I know about George Washington. I've just never known him. I know about John Calvin. I just don't know him. I've never actually met the living person. What Paul is saying here is that he has come and entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just religion in the head, but a relationship in the heart. He continues in verse 8. For, for whom, referring to Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things, anything and everything that I once considered of value to make me the person before God that God desired me to be. I count it all loss. And he goes on to say at the end of this verse, I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. It's the only time in the entire New Testament this word rubbish is used here. It's a Greek word, skubalon. And I'm going to be very discreet here. It means human waste. It means manure. It means excrement. It means dung. And Paul says... Circumcised the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, outwardly righteous, is just all dung. It's offensive that I would have trusted in that to find acceptance with God. And the moment you come to know Jesus Christ... Everything that you ever once counted on to give you a right standing before God stinks to high heaven. So he wraps this up in verse 9. It may be found in him, referring to in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. In other words, I cannot keep the law perfect enough to find acceptance with God because God demands absolute perfection and none of us meet that mark and God does not grade on the curve. It it, it is one offense, eternal hell forever. Break one commandment, commit one sin, it is eternal hell forever. You say, wow, is that fair? You don't know how holy God is. And you don't know how sinful you are. That one link in the chain is all that's needed to break until the entire chain is broken. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, verse 6, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So, verse 9, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So here's the million-dollar question. Here's the billion-dollar question. Here's the trillion-dollar question. 
What is true faith? Because Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Many people claim to have a belief in Christ and faith in Christ. So what is true saving faith? And I'm going to give you three words because this defines what are the component parts of true saving faith. The first deals with the mind. There must be, here's the word, a comprehension, an intellectual comprehension and true understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ, and the terms of Christ, what is required to enter into his kingdom. You must first know in the mind the truth of the gospel. No one will ever be saved until they know the truth. It is the truth that will set them free. The second word deals with the heart or the emotions or the affections. And that word we would define as conviction. That there is a deep inward persuasion of the truthfulness of the terms of the gospel. It's one thing to know the gospel. It's something else to be deeply persuaded within your heart of the veracity of this and of my need of it. And I am convicted of my sin. I am convicted of my need to have, to have Jesus Christ in my life. But even this is not enough. The head, comprehension. The heart, conviction. Finally, there must be the will, commitment. There must be the decisive choice of your will to entrust your life to Jesus Christ. Just like as you're sitting in that chair tonight, you had to make the decision to put all of your weight into, onto this chair and commit yourself to that chair. In the same way, true saving faith is the total commitment of your entire life to Jesus Christ. It's not a half commitment. It's not a partial commitment. It is a full commitment of your life to Christ. And I want to ask you, has this conversion ever happened in your life? Have, have, have you come to the place where you see that everything that you once looked to to commend yourself to God apart from Jesus Christ is but human waste that is vile and offensive to a holy God. And if you come to the place where you have committed your life to Christ, that's what happens at conversion. It is the commitment of your life to Christ. Now, I want to give you the third and final part of Paul's testimony. We, we have looked at Paul's life before conversion, verses 4 through 6. We have looked at Paul's life at conversion, verses 7 through 9. I want you to now see Paul's life after conversion, and that starts in verse 10. And I want to remind you that it is totally, completely impossible to meet Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, and for your life not to be changed significantly. Paul now talks about this dramatic transformation, and he, beginning in verse 10, he says that he has a new priority in his life. He says that I may know him, and the him refers to Jesus Christ. Now, you may say, well, Paul said at conversion he came to know Christ in verse 8, but now in verse 10, his goal is that he may know him. So which way is it, Paul? And the answer is this. 
the priority of Paul's life now is that he might grow to know Jesus Christ more deeply, more personally, more closely, to spend time with Christ, to pray, to be in the Word. This is Paul's new priority, and it must be our priority that more than you desire to know any person on planet Earth, your overarching supreme priority is for you to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in Philippians 1 verse 21, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. But not only a new priority, a new power. Look at verse 10. And the power of his resurrection. And he's talking about power to live the Christian life. You now have a new power that you did not have before conversion, and this power is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It is the very power that raised Christ from the dead, is operative in your life because Christ lives in you, and you now have power to resist temptation. You now have power to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You now have spiritual power to move forward in obedience to the Word of God. You have a power that you've never had before in your life. It is such a power that Paul will say in Philippians 4 verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That, that verse used to hang on the wall of my dorm in the, in the football dormitory when I was in college I hung it right over my bed so that every night when I went to bed, every morning when I got up, I would see Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Everything within the will of God. Everything that God would require of me. Despite my weakness, his power is more than sufficient to enable me to do everything that is pleasing to God. And with that, at the end of verse 10, a new persecution. It's all a package deal. It, it's, a, it's a new priority, and it's a new power, but it's also a new persecution. And look at the end of verse 10, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. In other words, the more that I know Christ, the more I will desire to make Christ known, the more I will be called to suffer for him. Because I will have advanced to the front lines of spiritual warfare. I will be flying my flag high for all to see. I will have crossed the line and, and returned back to the world into enemy territory and I will be a witness for Jesus Christ wherever I go. And this, too, is a part of the package deal of your life since coming to know Christ. It's not all a, a bed of roses. Paul will say in 2 Timothy three twelve, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will catch flack for your faith. If not, you have reason to question whether you've ever been converted. Because when you identify yourself with Christ, you will stand out like a bright star on a dark night, and you will find the resistance of this evil world system to those who are followers of Christ. The last thing that I want you to see is in verse 12, and it's a new pursuit. A new pursuit. He says, not that I have already obtained it, verse 12, and the it refers to the full knowledge of Christ and full conformity to Christ. And Paul is, is transparently honest, and he says, I, I haven't obtained it yet or have already become perfect. I'm not, I haven't reached the goal yet. I'm still in the race. But, he says in verse 12, in the middle of verse 12, I press on, and that's a, an athletic term for a sprinter running 
to the finish line. It, it's an all-out energetic effort, like a, a, a runner widening a stride and pumping his arms and leaning his chest forward. That's what Paul is doing in the Christian life. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul is aggressive in his pursuit of sanctification. Paul is aggressive in trying to become more and more like Christ. Verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I don't have the full knowledge of Christ. There is so much more of Christ I need to know. And I, I have not yet reached full conformity to Christ. In essence, all Paul has done is just put his little ankle into the Pacific Ocean, and there is still such a, uh, an infinite, vast horizon that is before him of knowing more of Christ. But look in the middle of verse 13. But one thing I do. Listen, everything else is secondary in Paul's life. Where he's going to live, what his job's going to be, who he's going to marry, if he ever would. It's all secondary. There's only one Mount Everest in my life that rises above the landscape of everything that is going on in my life. One thing I do. And the two words I do are not in the original language. And Paul actually writes this more emphatically. He just says, one thing. Forgetting what lies behind. That's everything in verses 5 and 6. That's all of his sufferings, all of his defeats, all of his victories. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. He's like this runner with a forward lean as he's sprinting to the finish line where Christ is awaiting him. He says, verse 14, I press on. I push to the finish toward the goal. The goal is the full knowledge of Christ. For the prize, the prize is at the end of the race. You don't receive the prize during the race. It's it's at the end of the race of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this call refers to when every believer is called home to heaven to be with the Lord at the time of their death or at the time of the return of Christ. And Paul says, I, I, I'm like a, a racehorse with blinders on. I, I, I can't see the other horses to my left or to my right. Paul has myopic vision. He has tunnel vision. He, he has narrowed his focus to, to one thing. I must know Christ even more. I must become like Christ even more. And the fact of the matter is, the more that we come to know Christ, the more joy we have, the, the more patience we have, uh, the more of everything that we have that is holy and good and that we need, as we grow to know Christ more, it is the happiest moments of our life. It is the deepest joy we will ever know as we come to know Christ yet more and more and more. It's not a drudgery. It is, it is a blessing. It, it is the, the epitome of all blessings. And then one day when I die, I will go to Christ and be in his immediate presence. That's why he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It'll, it's, it'll be better for me to die than to live because when I die, I go to be with Christ. And I will be glorified and made exactly like Christ as much as a saved sinner can become like Christ. I'll have a, a, a resurrection body just like Christ's resurrection body. And my sin nature will be eradicated and I will only have pure and holy and high thoughts of Christ. And I'll be with Christ forever and ever and ever. We will behold him and we will see him face to face. And it will be the consummation and the culmination of the entire Christian life. What we've just looked at tonight is the greatest testimony that's ever been given 
by the greatest Christian who's ever lived. It is written by the Apostle Paul who lived his life with full abandonment to Christ. And so I want to ask you tonight as I bring this to conclusion, do you know Christ? Do you love Christ? Do you live for Christ? Do you long for Christ? Do the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace? Are you willing to forget what lies behind? Are you pressing forward and reaching ahead to what lies before you, which is the person of Christ? Do you walk with Christ? Do you enjoy fellowship with Christ? Christ is everything. He's everything. And if you have Christ and if you know Christ, you have everything. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and understanding. But if you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. You're just left holding human dumb. Nothing of any value if you don't have Christ. And so tonight, for those of you who know Christ and who have Christ, I I just want to sharpen your focus upon Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. The word Christian means little Christ. You are to be like Christ an imitator of Christ in your life. It is Jesus who went to the cross for us. It is Jesus who bore the sins of all who would believe in him. It is Jesus who shed his blood for us. It is Jesus who satisfied the righteous anger of God toward us. It is Jesus who reconciled us to holy God. It is Jesus who paid the price to to find our freedom from the slave market of sin and Satan. It is Jesus who lives inside of us, who goes before us, who is under us to uphold us, who is behind us to protect us, who goes before us to prepare the way who lives inside of us to energize us and empower us to live for him. And if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, I would urge you to do so tonight as his word has been made known to you. Act now. Commit your life to Christ tonight. Enter through the narrow gate. Jesus says, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest for your souls, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. The greatest life you could ever live is to live for Christ. If I had 10,000 lives to live, I'd live every one of them for Christ. You have just one life. Don't squander it. Don't waste it. Invest it in Christ, and you will receive eternal dividends as you live for Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you for the power of your grace to change lives. We see what you did in the life of Paul. Lord, do it in our life. Change us dramatically. Make us everything that you desire us to be. Lord, bless us in Christ in whom are every blessing that there is.
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's all in Christ. Thank you for Paul's testimony. May it resonate deep within our hearts and souls tonight, and may it last in Jesus' name. Amen.